Welcome to Down to Earth but Heavenly Minded Podcast. Hosted by Irving Rich. Notes of Addresses on the Second Epistle to Timothy. By James Boyd. Second Timothy Chapter 1. This epistle no doubt contains some of the very last words of the Apostle. The time for putting off his tabernacle had drawn near, and he pours out the exercises and desires of his heart into the ear of the only man in whom he could place real confidence. In writing of him to the Philippians, he says, I have no man like-minded, who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. He had found Timothy at Lystra on his second, see note. Visit there, after that Barnabas had departed from him and sailed away to Cyprus. It appears as if Timothy had been brought to the Lord through his means, during his first visit to the place, for upon his second visit Timothy was already a disciple. Paul calls him his dearly beloved child, and writes this epistle to him to encourage his heart. When the profession of Christianity had got into such a state of indifference to Christ that the servant of the Lord stood in much danger of becoming faint-hearted. He does not seek to hide the true state of things from Timothy, but while he brings before him the true state of affairs, he seeks to stir up his faith by reminding him of his resources. Note. Perhaps his third visit, Acts chapter 14 verse 6, 21, 16 to 1. End of note. All that were in Asia had turned away from him. They no doubt thought he was too extreme. He was not open-minded enough for those who wanted to make the best of both worlds. They could not identify themselves with a man who was offensive to the rulers of this world, imprisoned as a malefactor and wore a chain. Their worldly pride would not consent to association with such a man. If he could not accustom himself to a little more moderation, he must do without the leaders in Asia, and so they turned away from him. As the Apostle draws aside the curtain a little way, and lets us see what was going on in his own day, we are a little appalled, but when he opens up the future before our gaze, and we see that there is to be no amendment, we may well desire to hear him tell us where we are to turn and find light for our path, and grace to tread it, in days when the evil would reach its climax. And how good and gracious of God to leave on record guidance for us in these days when the evil is fully developed, so that we might know how to behave ourselves when the whole profession is in ruin. The prominent thing in the first chapter is the testimony of our Lord, in the second, Jesus Christ of the seed of David raised from the dead, in the third, the Apostle's doctrine and example, and in the fourth, his departure out of the world. One great object of God in his approach to men in grace is to bring his people up out of this present evil world into the place he had purposed for us before this world was. As Moses was sent to bring Israel out of Egypt into the land of promise, so Christ came into this world to bring his people out of it and to lead them to heaven. Our blessings are not in this world, nor are they given to us on this side of death. They are all in Christ. We are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, and the work of the Spirit is to bring us in our hearts and minds to the place and person where and in whom all our blessings are. Pardon, righteousness, redemption, salvation and eternal life are all in Christ, and in him for all men, hence Christ is the glad tidings, and as glad tidings he has been preached to the whole creation. If we are to possess these things which are in him, we can only possess them in the power of the Spirit, and they are ours in him as the one in whose death the old order has been ended, and who in resurrection is head and center of a new heavenly and eternal system which has no link with the old earthly order, and to him we are attached, and in him we live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now Christ gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us out of this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. The Father had something better for us than this world, and to this we have been called. There is a notion in people's minds that the great thought in salvation is salvation from hell, but I have no doubt in my mind that the enemy is at the bottom of this idea, and that to make it the prominent thing is ruinous to souls.
the prominent thing is this evil age, and we may rest assured that if a soul is delivered from this world, there can be no fear of such an one going to hell. But no one could say that heaven would be a certainty to anyone apart from deliverance from the world. If we were to be brought into the purpose of God, deliverance from the world was a necessity, and in order that a way of deliverance might be set before us Christ gave himself for our sin. But in order to frustrate the purpose of God, the adversary has his subtle and dangerous instrument. And in this epistle we get two prominent forms of evil whose efforts are directed to keep the people of God in the world, they are Hymenaeus and Philetus on the one hand, and Yanas and Jambas on the other. These two forms of evil seem as if they were very wide apart and had nothing in common between them, but such is not the case, for they both conspire to one end. And that end is to connect you with the old order and with the system of this world. The two former say that the resurrection is past already. I do not attempt to define the doctrine, nor to show how they arrived at their conclusions, but if it meant anything to those who listened to them, it meant this, that the saints were already in their final condition. And the effect of this was to paralyze every movement toward the rest of God. The apostle writing to the Philippians refuses for himself the thought of being already perfected, Philippians chapter 3 verse 12, but speaks of being in the race for the goal. I think we may in measure fall under the power of the doctrine by connecting the blessings which are in Christ risen with ourselves down here, as if they were deposited in us. This would go very near the doctrine of those two men who overthrew the faith of some. The two latter, Yanas and Jambas, imitate the power of God working through his servant, and lend themselves to the prince of this world in his efforts to keep people under his bondage. Let us look now for a moment at the way this epistle opened. Paul speaks of himself as an apostle according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. At once our thoughts are turned into a new channel, entirely different from everything in the old order, whether it be of innocence or of guilt. The great thought of God for man was life, but not life as we view it in an innocent creation, not life as it is seen in Adam and in his posterity. Even if we could view them apart from the sin that has ruined everything, but life as it is in Christ Jesus. I suppose life consists in relationships and affections, but both the relationships and affections in Christ are entirely different from those which were in Adam. When man sinned death came in and all was irrecoverably lost in the old order. Death lies upon everything, and everything pertaining to flesh and blood must go in death, nothing can be retained. It was this the prodigal learned in the far country. There came a moment when he found he had spent all. Everything had gone. What can man retain of all his earthly portion? There arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Man has squandered everything. The last thing God had to give man was Christ, and he murdered him, and now eternal destitution stares him in the face. But the power of God has come in on man's behalf, and in Christ risen from the dead and glorified, God gives to man a new order of blessings, infinitely more and better than ever has been lost through sin. In him is life for man, but life after a new order, consisting in new relationships and affections which subsist in Christ. It is now, my Father, and your Father, my God, and your God. It is now the Spirit of God's Son in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Saints are his brethren, and all in the relationship of brethren together. Here we are together tonight, and comparative strangers to one another, owning no kinship in flesh, and yet in a relationship to one another that death is powerless to touch. Sin disturbed the old relationship, separated man from God, and estranged men from one another, and all came under judgment and were plunged in hopeless ruin. But the blessed God had his purposes already formed, and he had life in view for man, life as it is in Christ Jesus, beyond the reach of sin and death. And he has died for us. He gave himself for our sins that he might communicate to us his Holy Spirit, and in his life we are beyond the reach of death. 
in the old relationships, which belong to flesh and blood, the pressure of death lies heavy upon us, but in the favor of God, and in the love of the brethren. We know that we have passed out of death into life, we are beyond the reach of sin and its attendant consequences. Paul was an apostle of this life, and when ruin had come in upon that which bore the name of Christ, he falls back upon the promise of life, the life which is in Christ Jesus. Because here neither corruption nor failure can ever find an entrance. Whatever may happen to the outward profession that which is in Christ abides untainted in all purity and power. May we lay fast hold upon that which is in him in the midst of the ruin of that which professes his name. I was saying last evening that God's purpose by the gospel was to get his people out of this world, and I think this ought to be apparent to everyone, for he is not setting us up here below. It was not to deliver us from the judgment due to us on account of our sins and to establish us as citizens of earth, in connection with the system of this world, that God has approached us in Christ. As it was the purpose of God to take Israel out of Egypt, and from the bitter bondage, and to bring them into the land of Canaan. So his object is to bring us into the place which he purposed for us before the world was. Against this the devil sets himself, and to detain us here as his servants in his dominions he uses all his power, craft and influence. So that we may not be able to move in the direction of the rest of God. I drew attention to the fact that the Apostle does not speak of himself in the beginning of the Epistle as separated to the Gospel of God, as he does in Romans. But as an Apostle according to the promise of life, and he is very careful to emphasize that it is the life which is in Christ Jesus. This life, we can see at a glance, has nothing in common with the life of flesh. It has nothing to do with the Garden of Eden and innocence, it is an entirely different order of life and has not its existence in the relationships and affections which would have been the unsullied portion of an innocent race had sin not invaded that order. I was seeking to point out that man, himself departed from God, had lost everything, that no matter what a man may have that he might be inclined to view as his own, it is already forfeited. He can retain nothing pertaining to this life, and the sooner he comes to this the better, for no one really turns to God until he finds this out, but when we come to this, a mighty famine arises in our souls and we begin to be in want. Of this we all know a little. I might be made a millionaire or a monarch, but what is the good of it all? It will not bring me happiness. Why? Well, for one reason, I cannot retain it. Why not? Because death lies upon me, and I shall have to leave everything behind me. I might be surrounded with every comfort, and have relatives and friends who would lay down their lives for me if it were necessary, and I might find great enjoyment in their society. But death is there upon them and me, and that is the end of all these things. But the blessed God has come in to give us new things in Christ, all of which are beyond the intrusion of death. What is this that is said of the two sons in Luke chapter 15? The father divided unto them his living. All that God had for man after the flesh he gave him. First, he made him lord of all upon earth, next, when he had become lawless, his spirit strove with him to turn him into the way of righteousness, and all to no purpose, next, he gave him his law. And he broke that, next, he sent prophets who spoke the word of God to deaf ears, last of all he sent his son, and man murdered him and all is gone. But in the power of that precious blood God has brought Christ from the dead, and a new order of things has been brought about in him in resurrection. God has got nothing for man upon the old footing. He gave him all he had, and he wasted it with riotous living. But in Christ risen there is abundance for all, but everything there is new. Righteousness is there, but not righteousness such as God required from man at Sinai, nor righteousness such as might have been deemed suitable for children of Adam, but the righteousness of God, Christ himself as covering for man. 
salvation is there in him, but not temporal deliverance, and the reinstatement of man in the flesh secure from the invasion of foes, but salvation as it is in Christ Jesus with which eternal glory is connected. Life is there in him, but not the continuation of the life of flesh and blood, in the relationships and affections belonging to the old order, but life as it is in Christ in the light of the Father's love. It is not parents and children, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, but it is sons with God's Son before the Father's face. I was speaking of this the last evening, but I am a little loath to leave it. Because it is of all importance that we should be able to distinguish between what is in Christ and what is in the flesh, what is in the responsibility of man and what is in the purpose of God. Think of Christ, and of what is in Him. Think of the Father and His Son Jesus Christ, and of the relationship they bear to one another. And this is our place, the place Christ has as man before the Father's faith. And in the thought of God there never was any other place for man. And the gospel is preached that we might be brought into this place, that we might get the light of this place and relationship into our hearts, and that we might leave the old in our minds and affection. To this the devil is opposed, and Paul has to see before he leaves this scene how successful the enemy has been in turning the hearts of the people of God back into the world. Paul was a strong man, and a man of God, but he is leaving the saints in this hostile world, and his heart yearns after someone to rise up and care for them with the care of God. And Timothy is the only man he can turn to in this evil day, and he longs to see him face to face. He wishes to have an interview with him before leaving the scene of his labours. He says here, verse 4, greatly desiring to see thee, and, do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 9, and, do thy diligence to come before winter. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 21. Three times over he expresses his desire to see him. He called to his remembrance the unfeigned faith which dwelt in Timothy, his mother and grandmother. These things were to Paul very encouraging when he thought of his child in the faith. He had been brought up and nourished in an atmosphere of faith and piety, and through the grace of God the Apostle trusted it would not be without its effect upon him. Then he thinks of Timothy's natural timidity, and fears that, on account of the opposition, both in the profession and in the world, to that which God has established in Christ, he would become faint-hearted. And he seeks to encourage him to stir up the gift of God that was in him, and brings before him the fact that God has not given us the spirit of fear or cowardice, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The evil may increase and men may fall before its apparently invincible assaults, but Christ has overcome the world, and we have received his spirit, and we have no need to be alarmed, for in his power victory is certain. But the testimony of our Lord is in affliction, and if we are to take part in those afflictions, if we are to suffer evil with the glad tidings, it must be in the power of God. He speaks of the testimony of our Lord as the glad tidings, it is all that God has established in him on high. It will all be in display in the world to come. The Lord is the one in whom God has entered the creation to bring it back to himself. He is the great administrator of the whole will and counsel of God. All power is committed to him, he is Lord of all. He is the one who will bring to pass a condition of things in which God will have his perfect satisfaction and rest. To this end he has bottomed the judgment of God which rested upon us. He went down into the lower parts of the earth, and he went there in obedience to God, all God's waves and billows passed over him. He went down to the bottom of the mountains, the earth with its bars was about him. But he has broken the power of death, and he has gone up far above all principality, and might, and dominion, and every name that is named. And what has he gone up there for? That he may fill all things. I suppose the testimony of our Lord might be included in those two offices of Christ, life-giver and judge. He will fill God's universe with light and life and blessing, and all who do not come under his life-giving influence he will judge and place outside the circle of blessing.
there is nothing in the universe of God but will benefit from the fact that God has entered his own creation. He is Lord of all, Lord of angels, Lord of men, Lord of living and Lord of dead. He has the keys of death and Hades. He died, rose again and lives, in order that he might become Lord of dead and living. He is the only one who has a right to speak or act in the whole creation of God. Everything is in his hand. He will fill all things. He will bring back to God everything that is to be in blessing, and what is not subject to him he will banish from his face in unsparing judgment. He will make the heart of the universe palpitate with life, and remove every defiling thing from the sphere of blessing. But this testimony was in reproach, and on account of it Paul was bound with a chain. But he was not ashamed, for he knew whom he had believed. He had no question in his mind as to the issue of things. Man was having his day. The day of the Lord was coming. What he had contended for, and that for which he had suffered the loss of all things, was certain to triumph. It was in affliction then, and he was willing to suffer affliction with it, and quite ready to lay down his life for it, for in the end victory was sure. He knew whom he had believed. He was quite satisfied Christ could not be defeated, nor could anyone who believed in him be put to shame. And therefore he seeks to stir up Timothy to suffer affliction with the gospel, according to the power of God, who has saved us, and called us with an holy calling, not according to our work but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who has abolished death, and has brought life and immortality, incorruptibility, to light through the gospel. The salvation and the calling are both according to eternal purpose. We are predestinated to be conformed to the image of God's Son. He has called us with this hope in view, and we need to keep it before our souls. No man ever left this world until he saw a better, but a better is brought before us in the gospel. Death and corruption prevail in this world, but life and incorruptibility are brought to light in Christ, and the gospel testifies of them that we may be attracted to where they are. If God has brought life and incorruptibility to light it is in order that we might be occupied with them. It is not the thought of God that we should be occupied with death and corruption, nor with the failure of the profession, but with that world where Christ is and with the power that is in him. People seem to be distressed and disheartened about the state of the profession around us, but I do not think that scripture gives us any warrant to expect a better state of things. The great thing for us is to get well acquainted with the Lord where he is, and take our part in the afflictions of the glad tidings, having the most perfect confidence in the one in whom we have believed. Knowing that whatever things may look like today, the battle is the Lord's and therefore the victory is sure. End of chapter 1 on notes of addresses on the second epistle to Timothy by James Boyd.